بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه مباركا عليه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى جل جلاله وعم نواله والصلاة والسلام على سيد الحبيب المصطفى صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد So dear brothers and sisters, uh, nice to be in your midst today this evening uh, we want to speak about uh, from the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam things that hopefully we can learn from and uh, imbibe within our own lives. I think that's the purpose of it. Allah subhanahu wa taala says about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, "Wa innaka la'ala khuluqin azim." You are on the most sublime of character. You're on the most sublime of character. Now, for us to be able to benefit from what the Prophet ﷺ did in his life and why he did certain things, I think it's important to understand who the Prophet ﷺ was, especially in terms of his character, why it was so perfect, why he had the perfect moderation. Because we, when we look at various different events in his life, we're just left completely astonished. How did somebody have such a balance? How did, how, how did somebody have such an ability to pay the rights, the due rights of everybody he was speaking to or he was dealing with? How he managed to deal with issues in some of the most complex moments of his life? For example, uh, I, will, I will highlight some of these examples a bit later, but Basically, sometimes what you have is that you have a certain demand in your life. It's only a single demand. The entire focus is that particular demand. When there's a single focus on you to do something, there's no other competing demands upon you, then it's very easy to meet that demand. So if there's one thing that I'm supposed to do today, Right? I am supposed to go and do my shopping today. Then it's easy to do that because I can single-mindedly with one focus go and do my shopping. If it's an assignment that I'm supposed to, supposed to complete and I've got no other contending assignments, contending chores or any other responsibilities on that day, then I can do that. Now imagine if I've got my deadline today and there's somebody calls up and they're saying that we're coming into town, your best friend who you haven't seen for a while, a relative, an auntie, somebody else, I want to see you today. Now you know that you have to pay them their rights as well, right? You want to meet them as well, you want to make sure that they don't go without meeting you, but then you've also got this right. That is when you get two competing factors playing for your time, attention and focus. How does one deal with that? That is extremely complicated. You'll see in the life of the Prophet ﷺ that he is dealing with many different events in a single day, in a single moment. And then the wonderful thing is that he's actually able to fulfill all of those demands. Whether they be sentimental, emotional demands or whether they be demands from other people. He is the super Imam that everybody's looking for. The Imam, the leader, the Muslim leader that's supposed to be able to do this and that and this and that and everything and be able to meet all the demands. That's who the Prophet ﷺ was. So while we may not be able to become the super imam and the super leader that he was, we can definitely, at some level or the other, benefit from him in our, in our own lives, in whatever way, shape or possible. And for that, obviously, we need to know more about him. I'm only going to give you about five or six or seven examples, quick examples. I don't want to give any lengthy lecture today. I was actually hoping that the other speaker would have done his job and I would have just had to fill in a few maybe blanks here and there and then you know, uh, left you to it. But really what I want to do today is uh, rather than giving you a big monologue, uh, a one-sided discussion, I'd like to actually hear from you. Uh, because I want to hear what your challenges are and how, uh, what challenges I should actually speak to. Because at the end of the day, I've never been a pharmacist, never intended to be one, never been in a pharmacy class even. So I have absolutely no idea, right? Except that when I go to the doctors and they send me to a pharmacy, even that I've got it all automated so that I get an email or a WhatsApp, or sorry, a, a text message from the pharmacy saying, pick up your medicine, it's all ready. 
right? I haven't done the home delivery one yet. So that's my, that's my respond, you know, that's my interaction so far. So I'd like to hear from you. It doesn't have to be related to pharmacy. It could be related to university life. It could be related to life in general. It could be about perceived notions of what to do in the future. Various different challenges that we fear or we have some trepidation about. I want to hear from you. So what I'll do is I'll give you a few and then I'll let you ask the questions. And if you want to be anonymous, that's completely fine. Send a little note down and we'll read that note if you don't want to voice out your questions, if anybody doesn't feel comfortable. So please, if you've got questions about anything, let's keep, because this is a very general topic, right? This is an extremely general topic. I just want to make it as useful as possible. So the first thing, again, these are just a few of the points I'm picking out from the life of the Prophet Otherwise, you could go on speaking about him for forever. One is, I think one of the things that the Prophet was very good in doing was recognizing people's talents, especially his companions recognizing their skill, pointing them out, highlighting them, praising them even, and then using them and essentially signposting people towards their potential. So for example, you've got one of the companions, everybody will know him as Bilal ibn Abi Rabah. Now, he is not from that community. There seems to be racism at that time. There's a bias towards people of a different color, right? And within that, the actual leader, the Prophet ﷺ, before there's any movements for black rights and so on and so forth, or anything related to that, right? Any, any decision or, sorry, any idea, any movement about rights in general, anybody's rights for that matter, Right? The, the only thing that mattered in those, in those times, in the time of Jahiliyyah, is basically whoever was the fiercest. Whoever was the fiercest or the person who was considered to have a type of honor from before, tribal honor for example. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he sees Bilal anhu, who undergoes all of that persecution which I don't need to repeat, he commands him and he instructs him to become the Mu'addin, the voice of the Muslims. I mean essentially the voice of the Muslims, the Imam, the Imam is the one who leads the prayer. The Adhan is the, uh, is the one who announces the prayer. More likely the announcement of, of the, the, the prayer goes out further than even the Imam's recitation. Because in communities around the world, especially Muslim communities around the world, you'll hear the Adhan. Now one of the things that's related, at least from Umar an, if not from the Prophet wasallam, that if it wasn't for the fact that um, the leaders, like the Prophet ﷺ or Umar would, have been, would be busy dealing with uh, the affairs of the state, the affairs of people and, so, and the religious affairs, they would have also been an Imam, they would have also been a Mu'addin. The reward of a Mu'addin, the reward of the one who calls for the prayer is huge. That's why I think it was Umar who actually said that if it wasn't for the fact that I had to do everything else as well, I would, also be, I would have also been the Mu'addin. Because anybody who does adhan, anything, anything that hears that, hears that call to prayer, whether that be an animate being or an inanimate object. I know, I know we're getting into a different, and pharmacy has got nothing to do with that, but uh, consciousness. You know, do silent objects have consciousness? That's a new idea. That's, it's not a new idea. People have been discussing it. In Islam, we believe that things have a... A, a level of consciousness. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, There is nothing except that it glorifies its Lord. Then Allah says, But you don't comprehend their glorification. Now, that's extremely difficult for people before our times to have ever comprehended. But today with smart objects, you know, we have smart gadgets, we have smart objects, and more and more and more, they're trying to build AI, artificial intelligence, into things. So it doesn't seem as far-fetched anymore as it used to be. For example, when the Prophet ﷺ went on his ascension, uh, to, from, uh, from Makkah Mukarramah to Masjid Al-Aqsa, Jerusalem, in one night, when it would have been impossible to have uh, traversed that distance in a few hours. Uh, at that time it was impossible. But the world has shown, today, it, it, the world has shown, technology has shown, how that's become possible. 
you can easily go from Medina Munawwara. It's only a, you know, several hundred miles from Medina Munawwara to Jerusalem. You can get there in a few hours. Right? It's probably a two-hour flight or so. That's been shown. Then the Prophet ﷺ went from there up to the seventh heaven and beyond to meet Allah. Now that still seems quite far-fetched for a lot of people. Now if somebody says to you, do you believe that as Muslims? Right? What answer would you give them? Right? You would just say, I believe it. But it doesn't make any sense. It's not scientific. How does somebody go that way? Go that way. He didn't have a space suit on. All right? At least to go up there, there's a lot of pressures. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of other energy out there. And you need to have, be in a space suit to be able to withstand that. So how did he do that? So that's where people start getting a bit confusing. But remember, the one thing that's very important is that it's not your or my responsibility to prove the details of that ascension journey. Because that's not something that we can do right now. Right? It, we, we're not in responsible to prove that. All we are responsible to do, which is very easy to do nowadays, is to prove that it's from the realm of possibilities. That it is a possible thing, it can happen, it's not an inconceivable idea. And today, more than ever before, this has become, uh, this has become a, a possibility. Abu Bakr anhu, when he was told, the Prophet didn't tell him that I went on this ascension to the seven heavens. It was actually one of the enemies of Islam. When he heard it from the Prophet ﷺ, he came to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, who was his closest friend. And he said, do you know what your friend is saying? He's saying X, Y, and Z. So he said immediately, if that's what he's saying, I believe that because I can believe even beyond that. Now that's clearly power of faith that he would believe in the Prophet ﷺ, something that is so, at that time, probably even inconceivable. Today... People have gone to Mars, not people, but things have gone, well, to the moon, to other places, and to Mars. We've sent a rover there. And it's just a matter of time, they're saying, to get beyond that. So doesn't it now become within the realm of possibilities? Well, what about the spacesuit? Well, the way things are moving, nanotechnology and other things, isn't there a possibility that you could probably have some kind of resistance built into you or sprayed onto you or something like that, eventually? All of that now is within the realm of possibilities. Another simple example, that Umar is standing in the front and he's giving a khutbah, he's talking to his companions. Suddenly he says, Sariya, Sariya, the mountain. Now Sariya, everybody knew, was in battle many thousands of miles away uh, in uh, Khurasan, uh, you know, further away in Asia. And suddenly Umar is speaking to him as though he's taking a call, right? And telling him, watch it, you know, with a walkie-talkie. Today, for us, it's so easy to understand that. But that time, it was amazing. When Sariya came back after some weeks or whatever it was, they related to him that uh, Umar radiallahu anhu was giving a khutbah, and suddenly he started talking to you. He says, yes, I was there. My forces were there. And we didn't know that the enemies were behind the mountain. And that we were going to be attacked from there. So I suddenly heard a voice of Umar saying, Sariya, Sariya, the mountain. So it was very good that that happened. Otherwise we would have been attacked. So that story was corroborated later. Sounds fantastic. Sounds, fa uh, sounds like a fantasy. But today, is that difficult, you think? You could have an earpiece on. Right? Today, we would actually probably need an earpiece, right? But tomorrow, they, you could just have a chip built in where you speak and somebody else will be able, you could be, you could be communicating with somebody else. Can you see how things are becoming much more realistic and not difficult? I'm saying this because a lot of these things actually create a lot of dilemma today in the minds of people to make, turn them away from the faith and make the faith seem fantastical, right? And strange. So... Going back to the Adhan, this all came from the Adhan, right? The Prophet ﷺ gave one of the highest positions, which is to become the Mu'adhin to Bilal who was an African slave. And he saw the talent in him, he saw the ability in him, he also knew that maybe he needed encouragement, he needed to have a high position. And that's why the people used to really respect Bilal afterwards. To such a degree, when the Prophet ﷺ passed away, Bilal left Medina Munawwara and he went to Syria. He went to Sham. He's actually buried in Damascus. I've been to his grave. He's buried in Damascus. He wouldn't come back. 
One day, it's, there's a story that's related that he saw the Prophet ﷺ in his dream that, Ya Bilal, what is this estrangement from us? How come you've left us? How come you don't come? And he just went straight to Medina Munawwara. And when he got to Medina Munawwara, people found out he's there and they knew that he's not going to give the adhan because he, he would just remember the Prophet ﷺ too much. It was just too difficult uh, for him to give the adhan. But what they did was they told Hassan and Hussein, the grandchildren of the Prophet ﷺ, to request. And it says that he gave the adhan. And when he gave the adhan, the men, the women just came out of the houses because it was just a reminder of how it was when the Prophet ﷺ had been around. They connected that, that was their connection back to the Prophet. ﷺ. Another example which I could never see happening here right is the story of the Prophet ﷺ had a freed slave that he made like his son to such a degree that when the parents of that particular individual his name was Zayd Zayd ibn Haritha when his parents came to take him back to wherever he was from he refused to go with them he says no I want to stay with the Prophet ﷺ. that's how his relationship had become with the Prophet now he had a son his name was Usama, right? His name was Usama ibn Zayd. He was about... Uh, now his father, Zayd, had passed away. He'd been martyred in the battle uh, against the Romans in a place called Muta. Muta, uh, uh, which is located in a place called Karak today in, in, Amma, in Jordan. It's south of Amman. You, you need to drive for a few hours. It's closer in the direction of the Dead Sea down south. It's a place called Karak. They made a massive mosque. There were three companions that died on that day holding, the, flat, uh, holding the, the standard of the Muslims against the Romans. So now it's, it's the last year. It's towards the last year of the Prophet's life, the 10th year of migration. The son of Zayd, his name is Usama, he's 17 years old. And the Prophet makes him the commander of the army against the Romans. Right? There was going to be maybe an impending attack from the Romans in a particular area, so he makes him the, the, the leader of the army. Now, there are some much older, greater warriors right, that are part of that army, and they are all behind him. Right? He is their commander. And there was criticism. Now, people criticize this fact that how is he made the leader? Right? Criticism is a human trait. They did it at the time of the Prophet ﷺ as well, just like we do it here, right? Just like we people do it now. So the Prophet ﷺ heard about the criticism and he got extremely angry. There's a hadith in Sahih Muslim from Abdullah ibn Umar who says that the Prophet ﷺ was on the pulpit speaking to the congregation and he says that if you are criticizing his, <coughs> his command, his leadership, meaning Usama ibn Zayd, who's 17 years old, you did the same with his father, right? You did the same with his father earlier on. Now, what you have to understand here is that making somebody who's 17 years old, imagine making him even the head of the committee in a masjid. I mean, forget committee in the masjid. Imagine just making him a committee member, right? Imagine even become a committee member. I've had cases in one particular masjid committee where most of the, the members are kind of my father's age, about around 60. And there's somebody my age who was going to perform a certain task for them. And I heard some of them saying that he is not, he's not old enough. He's 40 years, he was 40 years old. He has about two or three children. And he also is an accountant in a law firm and he's dealing with millions of pounds a year, probably more than any of the guys on the committee. But he is not there yet. Do you see what I'm saying? With the Prophet ﷺ, he's the leader of the Muslimin. He's putting a 17-year-old kid up there. A 17-year-old, I mean, I mean, I don't... You see, if somebody complains about a 17-year-old people today, I don't blame them because we're still trying to wean them off. Like games and stuff like that. Like, get serious, man. You need, you've got a life ahead of you. So I can completely understand where maybe people are coming from, right? But 
Come on. Now, one is that you put somebody up like that, you get criticism, right? You're criticized for it. Some people may backtrack. The Prophet ﷺ did not backtrack. He defended him, right? He got up on the mimbar and he started saying, if you've done this, you know, if you're doing this now to him, you did the same to his father. Innahu la khaliqun. He is definitely worthy of leading you. He's definitely worthy of leading you, right? And wa uh, by, by Allah, by Allah, he is, he is one of the most beloved people to me as well. Now this, not, this was not favoritism. Just because he's the most beloved person, I'm going to put him up there. I just need to clarify that. He defended him, he said he's the most beloved person to me, but he is also worthy. After that, as this army was still on the borders, it hadn't gone forth, it hadn't set out yet, and the news that Prophet ﷺ passed away. So, Later on, it went afterwards in Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu's leadership. He allowed it to continue because there's no way he could make that change now that the Prophet had said that Usama would be the leader. All right. So that is basically finding potential and using that potential, supporting it, defending it, and regardless of the age. Number two, he always to show gratitude to those who do something good for you, who do you a favor. That's extremely important. To do, to give thanks to those who show you favor, because that's um, an important human interaction that only is beneficial because if you do something for me and I show you gratitude, you'd want to do more for me. So there's a personal, even a selfish motive in that. It's just ingratitude, arrogant, not to do so. The Prophet ﷺ did not really need anybody's help. Allah was sufficient for him. But Abu Bakr anhu assisted him. And the Prophet ﷺ remembered this. This is just one example. He said that there is nobody who has done more favor to me with life and property as Abu Bakr anhu. Because you know the stories, I don't want to repeat the stories to you about Abu Bakr and his sacrifice for the Prophet ﷺ. But the fact is that he is remembering that. And he's somebody who's really up there, he doesn't have to remember anybody. He doesn't have to thank anybody, especially if it's their obligation, religious obligations to help him anyway. But he shows that this is something beyond. For example, a question that could come into our minds, right, is that our parents... Sometimes we get a bit upset about our parents, right? Sometimes it, it's, it's a normal thing, it can happen. We don't always see eye to eye with our parents, and sometimes we can be a bit upset about them. So, I don't know, has this question come into anybody's mind? The only reason my parents are doing anything for me, it's because it's their human emotional uh, demand to do so. Or number two, it's their religious obligation to do so because God has made it an obligation to them. Or it's just their emotion to do so. Otherwise, I don't... So then basically what we're doing is we're really taking out the whole favor aspect from it. Because when you make something an obligation, he had to do that. She was obliged to do that. You suddenly take out any emotion aspect. You don't then have to show gratitude. Can you see what I'm saying? Has that ever come into anybody's mind? Right? So even if that's the case, right? If, you're, if as an obligation you had to help me, it's still, as the Prophet is showing us, to actually show gratitude. Because that's a human trait. It doesn't matter why they're doing it. I've got an obligation. You've got a different obligation. Your motive could be selfish. Your motive could be however it wants. It's not, that's not up to me. I've received some favor from you, so let me thank you. Let me thank you. So, these are, I'm, I'm talking about the very subtle kind of things. Hopefully, hopefully they're resonating. The Prophet ﷺ, he is very intelligent, right? Many things that he's done have, always, have all come right so far. And when you've done a few things and you've had a few successes, we start feeling more confident. We build our confidence like that. Those people who are, have a lot of, um, who don't have enough confidence when they start something and then they get a success and then another success. They start getting very confident. 
Now we have to be careful we don't become overconfident because at the end of the day we're human beings and human beings have weaknesses, right? Regardless, right? So the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam not only is he uh, not only is he having success after success, not only is he commanding so much respect, not only are people you know honoring him to such a huge degree. According to our religion, Jibreel السلام, is coming to him, the, the, the angel is coming to him, God is speaking to him, Allah is speaking to him. Why would I need to consult anybody else then? Why would I need to ask anybody anything? But Allah says in the Quran, there's actually a whole surah, a whole chapter saying, Surah to Shura. Shura means consultation. And the command there is, Washawirhum fil amr. Seek their counsel, seek their advice, seek their opinion, right, with regards to the matter. Now, what's very interesting is somebody does, somebody's done a study on this, and what they've shown is that every time the Prophet asked for opinion of his companions, then he generally went with the majority of that opinion, even if it went against his own opinion. On one occasion, he had an opinion. Abu Bakr had an opinion. Umar had a different opinion. And he went with his opinion. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed it in the Quran. Right? Uh, if, it, if it hadn't been a decree that's already been written, then there would have been a punishment that could have come and afflicted you because of the opinion you followed. You were supposed to have followed the other opinion. Whenever he made, there was uh, one battle where he asked, should we stay here? They're going to be attacked, right? They were going to be attacked. Should we stay here and defend ourselves in the city or should we go outside? So, one opinion was we stay inside. The other one was that we go outside. Because the majority opinion was go outside, even though it was, uh, it, because the majority of opinion was, uh, was against his opinion, he still went with their opinion. So why would he do that when he's divinely guided? He's getting guidance from Allah. He can't do any wrong. Because even as a leader, now we're not all leaders, but we're going to have some form of responsibility. We're going to have some form of responsibility. Whether that be just household responsibility at some level or the other. right? Whether that be in a work environment. Whether that be in a class environment. We're going to have some responsibility. Even if you know, it's always a good idea to get the idea of people Right? Just so you don't have to necessarily follow the majority, though that's a good idea sometimes, right? as long as you've got decent people. I mean, when you've got loads of people, right? uh, just anybody, I mean, you can tell what Brexit's done. right? So majority is not always right. You have to remember that. The majority is not always right. That's why one of the flaws of the democracy is that it's prone to induct... It's prone to... Uh, uh, it's prone to campaigning. Uh, uh, for the wrong thing because people don't have information and people can be manipulated right so that, that, that doesn't mean anything majority is not always a proof but if you've got a panel of experts on a certain thing majority there has more weight generally speaking it's never going to be foolproof but uh, it, it has more weight in that sense but anyway he would generally ask his companions before making a decision in fact, not only his companions, he would even ask his own family, of course. Right? There's numerous occasions where there was some tension outside. He would come home and he would ask his wives. One of his wives would give him an idea and that would be the best course of action. Because there's always going to be people who, you have to remember, there's always people who are outside of our little pressure balloon that are going to see things differently. And they can sometimes advise us because we're too involved sometimes to be able to see it correctly. In fact, not only that, sometimes he even consulted with people about his private affairs. For example, the famous story, which I don't want to repeat, when Aisha, radiallahu anha, his wife, was uh, slandered, for, uh, as, uh, uh, slandered and accused of having committed sexual intercourse with somebody else, or having been with somebody else. So the Prophet ﷺ, he asked the Sahaba, what should I do in this case? Because it was a 
really strange issue because a lot of the hypocrites were the ones fanning the rumors. And it was a very difficult situation. He was, Prophet ﷺ was waiting for something from Allah. That's why Abu Huraira said that I've never seen anybody consult his companions more often than the Messenger of Allah. ﷺ. I guess it helps people to stay involved. So, on that particular occasion, Sahil Bukhari, he said, O oh people, give me your opinion regarding these people who made a forged story against my wife. How should we deal with them? What should be the response? Of course, another thing that we could give you numerous examples about is the, his gentleness in his dealing. Even with the... In fact, one of the things that I've learned from that is the more silly somebody acted with him, if it was a person issue, the more silly somebody acted with him, the more weird somebody acted with him, the calmer he became. Me, I know that about me, if somebody acts silly, then I get really angry. And if they're really silly, then I get very angry. Right? Because I don't mind somebody making a genuine mistake, but if somebody is acting unfair, I get very, I get very upset. Right? But the Prophet ﷺ, if it was something that somebody had said about religion, a violation of religion, he got very angry because that wasn't his matter anymore. It was not a personal issue. But when it was a personal issue, he just took it really easy. He took it really easy. Like somebody, in fact, there was a, a Jewish trader, a Jewish person who had lent him, had done a deal with him to be paid at a certain time. He had to go and give him dates at a certain time or something. The person came up about a few days before to say, where's my dates? Not only, oh, where's, my, where's my payment? And not only did he say that, he added, he said, you know, you, your family, they always delay in payment. You guys have a trend, you guys have a trait of delaying payment. That he, he actually wanted to make it personal. The reason is that he'd been told by some of his uh, religious advisors that the next prophet is going to have a very particular trait. Some particular traits. Two of them he'd already seen. One of them was that anybody who's foolish, anybody who's foolish, the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him is going to act extremely clemently with him. Very forbearing. He wanted to test that out so he set up this scene. So now when he started speaking like this, Umar got very angry. And he said, how dare you speak like that? So the Prophet said to Umar, you know when you're in trouble, and somebody comes and defends you, that could be the breath of fresh air for you. Imagine if you've got three or four people, they're all at you, saying something to you, and you've got nobody, and then suddenly somebody defends you. That is like the greatest sense of relief, isn't it? Like, wow, okay, yeah, 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 you know? But he said to Umar, radiallahu anh, he says, I would have expected something other than that from you. You should be advising me that I should pay in time, on time, and you should be advising him that he should be more patient and take it easy. That's what you should be doing. Can you see what I'm saying is that when the tension is there at its peak, when people lose their mind, he's still balanced. How do we learn that? At a moment of tension where you could even be excused. We say, oh, it was a moment of tension. When people then say, make stupid remarks, racist remarks or whatever, Islamophobic remarks, then what they do is they, or anti-Semitic remarks generally, and then they come and say, oh, it was just one of those times, it was a lad's party, or I was, had few, more, few too much to drink, as though that's an excuse. Right? Drink and then you can just do whatever you want type of thing. Right? But it's that moment of stress that the Prophet ﷺ still gets it right. That's amazing. We ask Allah that Allah make us, allow us to do the same thing. The other one, can you imagine your house, your mosque, somebody comes and starts urinating inside. Now you know that story, right? I mean a lot of people know this story. A Bedouin comes and starts urinating inside the mosque. Can you imagine that happening today? What would they do? The, the, you know, you could just imagine. Now some companions, natural reaction, they did go to stop the person. Immediately the person said, leave him. Leave him. How do you have such control? Why do you leave him? Because it's harmful to stop somebody midway. He's already messed it up. Let him at least don't harm him now. Right? I, when I read that, I was just like, wow. You know, that's just amazing. 
the one demand is that the mosque is being polluted the other demand is that this the other pressure tension whatever you want to say is that this person is going to be harmed okay we can wash the masjid but if he has a bladder problem afterwards that's going to be more complicated who would think about these things so then after that he just said okay and then he called the person and he said look you know these mosques they're not a place for this Therefore, reading Qur'an and prayer and remembrance of Allah, they're not for this kind of thing. Now, you might think that, you know, the masjid had a nice carpet and so on and so forth. How could somebody go and do that? They didn't have carpets in those days, right? They, it was just probably pebble, right? It was just probably sand. So that was just a natural piece of land that they did. I mean, when, I visited, uh, when we visited Mauritania, we actually saw some of this. Right, where they would just build a structure around. I remember in that one place we went to in the middle, of, in like really late at night, and it was just beautiful, just mounds of sand. And they, the Sheikh had a, the building, then there's other tents and everything, and they just built onto the sand. You're, it's just sand underneath you, you just got a, you know, like a little, some kind of rug on there that you're sleeping on. It's quite very natural, very organic. Right? So that's what it was. So I can understand how this could have happened. Otherwise, for somebody to come and do that in our mosque, they must have a, that must be a conspiracy. Like, why would somebody else do that unless he's completely crazy? Okay. The Prophet ﷺ used to use a lot of examples to convince people. Again, that's another thing. For example, there's a man from the Banu Fazara, the Fazara tribe. He came to the Prophet ﷺ, he says that my, ch- my wife has given t- birth to a baby who's dark. Right? And essentially what he was trying to say is that I want to disown that baby. I want to disown the child. <sighs> now here we would say go and do a DNA test, right? The Prophet ﷺ said to him that have you got camels? Do you have camels? He said yes, I've got camels. What color are they? He said red. Now red camels were very expensive in those days. This guy had red camels. Are there any gray ones among them? So he said, yes, um, there are some grey ones. Why is that, do you think? Why have you got r- some grey ones within your red camel? They're all from one progeny, basically. They're all from one, um, uh, one progeny. Why have you got grey ones within the red ones? Why, why do, do some camels beget grey camels, even though they're red? He said, perhaps it's... Essentially it says Which basically means that Maybe this is a chromosome From one of the ancestors Essentially he said in similar Perhaps it's hereditary So he said if it is hereditary Right Then he says perhaps this is hereditary as well Why would you have to Reject your child And say your wife committed adultery For example and it was clearly it wasn't, I mean, there, there have been other cases when there were adultery cases, so he did allow somebody to disown their child because that's clear, that was a clear issue. The Prophet ﷺ even told jokes. In fact, there's a hadith in the Shama'il. The Shama'il is a, a wonderful collection by Imam Tirmidhi of the Prophet ﷺ in various different roles. So the Prophet ﷺ, what perfume he used to use. Uh, how he used to live, how he used to spend his night, how he used to eat. And there's one at the end, how he used to live and interact. And one of the hadiths say that the Prophet ﷺ was so amazing that he would be so casual with us though he's our Prophet. But when we would sit down and talk about old days, he would sit and just relax and talk about them. And he would speak to us in a very casual way as well. He wasn't just somebody you had to like tiptoe around. He could also be very casual. That's why there's a famous story, uh, two instances, you've probably heard them. The Prophet ﷺ, an older woman came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, I want to go to paradise, or how do I get to paradise? And he said, old women are not going to go to paradise. Now that's a blunt statement. And she started crying, she started weeping, like old, men, old women not in paradise, what's happened? said, everybody's going to be young when they go to paradise. So he was basically just telling her, you will go to paradise, but you won't be old when you go there. Because everybody's going to be about 30 to 33 years of age in paradise. They will remain that age forever. Because that's the peak age to enjoy. And paradise is about enjoyment. So you'll only be about 30 something years old. When... 
So that's what he said. Another guy came to the Prophet ﷺ and his particular conveyance, means of conveyance, uh, was injured. So he needed to get back home. He came to the Prophet ﷺ, can you give me something? Can you give me an animal that I can ride back home? Um, he said, the Prophet ﷺ, yeah, I'll give you the offspring of a she-camel. That made it sound like he's going to give him a baby camel. He says, what am I going to do with a baby camel? I need to get home. I can't ride a baby camel, basically. So the Prophet said to him, like, aren't you thinking? Now this is also, isn't every camel the offspring of a she-camel? Right? That's exactly what it is. I said, you know, those committee guys, they, they think that it doesn't matter how old you are, you're still my son, you're still my daughter, you don't know anything. As though they were older when they started. Right? So the Prophet is getting the person to think. These are permissible jokes. You just don't do crazy jokes. Right? You don't do crazy jokes, you know, get people to uh, basically be in really compri compromising situations and then you spread that on social media and then that becomes a major trauma for this person. That's problematic. But a nice, innocent, true joke is actually appreciated in many cases. Time management and giving everyone their due, that's what the hadith talk about. When he came home, he gave them their he, he spent time at home, right? When he was outside, I just don't know how he did it. He was the imam, he was the leader of the masjid, he was the counselor, he was the commander of the army, he was a, he was a husband to nine wives at once. People can't even deal with one, they keep complaining, all right? But he was a, a husband to nine wives, he had children, though all of them died young, right? Except Fatima. Uh, uh, well, the sons all died young, the daughters died at a bit older, uh, at older ages, because, but he never had any grandsons, and no, no grandchildren, except Hassan and Hussein from Fatima. Anha. He fulfilled every responsibility, very difficult, you'll be struggling, we just don't have enough time in the day, and he was able to do that. The other thing is that I don't think he brought stress home from outside. Can you imagine what he was dealing with outside? He did not bring that stress home and just lash out at everybody. When he came home, and that's something we need to understand because eventually you're going to be working in... Are you guys all pharmacy, by the way? Is this like all pharmacy? Majority. No. So what is it? Majority. Oh, majority. What else are people doing here if you're not pharmacy? Gene therapy. Sorry? Gene therapy. Gene therapy. Okay. Gin therapy. Gene <laughs> therapy. Good stuff. Okay. We need gin therapies. I just got a call today. A guy goes, me and my wife are bony, be, being afflicted. So I got really happy when you said gin therapy. I was like, okay, maybe I'll send you there. Okay, anything, what else? What else have you got here? That's it? Just one gene therapy and nobody else? Okay, alhamdulillah. So there's going to be stresses at work. You don't come home and you don't bring that home, basically. And the, at home, it needs to be another thing. That's very difficult to be able to balance and not carry your tensions onto others. And this is the Prophet ﷺ was very good. For, uh, uh, just final point. Another moment of tension. The Prophet's son, whose name was Ibrahim, he passed away at a young age. Now when your son, and you know, he's had a few sons before that who'd also passed away. And now Ibrahim, he passes away. You'd feel very upset. And clearly the Prophet ﷺ shed a few tears. He did that when his grandson, grandchild passed away. He shed a few tears. The Sahaba got a bit confused because he'd been, you know, in that time there was, there was a, a trend, a ritual, a custom that when somebody died in your family, you would actually hire, if you didn't have them in your family, you would hire wailers. These were these women who would come and they would basically tear at their hair, tear their garments and wail. And that was seen as a good sending off. Even in some African tribes now, they actually have a, like this whole merry, uh, it, it looks merry, but that's what they do. They beat at drums and they do other things and they dance and everything like that. It's just people have different traditions. We said that's not a time for that kind of stuff. Right? So the Prophet ﷺ was seen weeping. So that was very something like, how come you tell us not to, people not to wail and so on, but you are seen weeping? He says, this is just compassion. This is just mercy. This is emotion. You're allowed to release that emotion. But you can't go overboard. 
But at the same time, while he may have done that, his, there's a concept in Islam which the Prophet had the highest level of, which is called Ar-Rada Bil-Qada. Satisfaction with the decree of Allah. That's a very important concept. It's very difficult to get a good portion of that because it's a very difficult thing to do. Because essentially whatever happens to you, to then any, you know, even the worst thing that happens to you, you think, well, Allah knows, I leave it to Him. That's very tough. Because we're going to, it's very difficult to even think like that at that time. But the Prophet ﷺ had the highest level of that. Rada bil qada. So, there was a, a, there was a scholar whose son passed away. And he, didn't, he, was, he was seen smiling on that day. He was seen smiling on that day. Somebody asked him, how are you doing that? Now obviously this must have been a lot of effort to have done this. He said, well, I'm just satisfied by the decree of Allah. But was, is that the way to be satisfied? Can you not even shed a few tears? There's two tensions here. One is that I, the emotion I feel if you lose somebody. That's one emotion which wants you to cry out. The other emotion is, don't, sorry, the other demand of your religion is that don't lose yourself. At the end of the day, we're all going back to Allah. Don't lose yourself. How do you reconcile the two? This particular scholar, famous scholar that I'm talking about, he did it by smiling. But I think that's extreme. That's been shown to be, because the Prophet ﷺ, in the story I gave you, he wasn't smiling, he did weep. But his heart was connected to Allah that, okay. So there's the human release of emotion, which is completely fine. But intellectually, you know what you're doing. You can understand why this may have happened. Even if you don't, you know that at least you trust in Allah. Trust in God and that you consign your matters to Him. So, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop here. But that's what keeps me going with the Prophet ﷺ, To learn about these things and to just hope that one day I can just be a, even a part of this I can help. So that I just be a better person. And I ask Allah for help for all of us that we can benefit from this light uh, that the Prophet ﷺ has left us and his, his life. And uh, we ask Allah to facilitate and make it easy for us. And Jazakallah khair for sitting patiently. And uh, we can uh, now take some questions if you have. Yeah, so the question, I mean everybody can hear, right? The, the question is that how did the Prophet ﷺ react when, when the need arose to admonish somebody? How did the Prophet ﷺ react? Because obviously every situation would be different. Sometimes, so again, uh, what our brother said is that uh, sometimes, you know, you may need to be pa uh, wise and, was the other one, patience you said. Wise and patience are probably two totally different ideas anyway. He would, the Prophet's entire action, I think, would be characterized by, by wisdom. And wisdom demands that in certain cases, you just tell somebody sternly. You just tell somebody nicely. When we say nicely, it basically means somebody calmly. And that's sufficient. That's enough for them to know that you are just admonishing them. But there was an occasion where the Prophet ﷺ said things in a much more stern way. When he felt that, for example, in the case of Usama radiallahu anhu, he says, What is this that I see that people have been criticizing? Right? That was a very direct way of saying, don't do that. And then of course, then the Prophet ﷺ told one person, don't get angry. When he asked him for advice. So I think every situation demands that there's a certain way that you react to it. Uh, and one of the things which is very important that shows us in that issue with the Bedouin who came and urinated in the mosque. One of the things which uh, is actually highlighted by many scholars is that you can't tell somebody off if they don't know that they had to do something in a particular way or not. So a lot of the time we assume that just because I know that something is halal or haram, or something has to be done in a particular way, then they should know as well, and I can tell them off. I can only tell them off after I've given them the knowledge that that thing is correct or not, or that they should do it this way or that way. Do you see what I'm saying? 
So there's actually levels of this that you have to look at. And I think we have to learn from the way we do it so that the next time we just get better. The, pro the point that I think, if, it, if it's very clear, there's some point people, they just want to make a point in telling somebody something. The focus is not that they change or they think magically it'll change the harsher you can tell them. That's not a good idea. Right? Harshness doesn't always work at all. In some cases it's needed, but it doesn't work always. I think if what I've, tr what I've been trying to do is I'm thinking, how can I convince them? What can I use that will convince Because that's what I want. That's my ulterior objective is that I convince them. And to do that, you may have to sometimes say it the way it is. Brutally honest. Sometimes you may have to say it in a roundabout way. You may have to use a euphemism. And sometimes you may even have to give them a turning off. It just depends. And sometimes it's easier done with, with strangers, because you can be controlled with your own, for example, when you have children, uh, with your spouse, because you're so used to. Some people, they think it's okay then to just be harsh all the time. That's where you have to really worry about it. Uh, how should we react to your parents when they oppose um, Islamic practices? How should we react to parents? Now, that's a difficult one because it depends on where we are with parents. Is the whole, was the whole family non-practicing? And then suddenly I became religious. You know, like one family member becomes religious. Now he wants to change everybody overnight. Is it a case of that? You're going to need a lot of patience. Remember, it's very difficult to change somebody militarily. Which means basically doing military, military amr bil ma'roof and nahi anil munkar. Right? Militarily commanding someone to do the right, it turns people off. So we have to thank Allah that Allah has given us the guidance and we have to make a lot of dua for them and we have to try to plant the seeds and try to find the best way that you think will affect them. And you have to have a lot of patience. You have to have a huge amount of patience because the more you keep pushing, the more they're going to put up a resistance. This is what human beings do. So the best policy there is just patience and slowly slowly try to make changes i've seen many young men and women who became better practicing people but because of the positivity that they expressed it may have taken five ten years i know one guy whose father now goes and sits in itikaf every year whereas 10 years ago i would never have expected him to do so because his son became righteous and he brought a positive change to the house. People saw that, that religion must do something for him. Practice must do something for him. Because a lot of people are not practicing because their, their culture wasn't from the practicing one. They're from a clique of people who don't practice. For them to come out of that, they're going to be really embarrassed. Because their own friends are going to say like, hey, you just become very religious now. You've become this, they have names for them. That's very difficult. They have to see the reason, the benefit for them to, to change. And if you're in that position, we're in that position, we need to see the best way to do that and make a lot of dua. And you'd be surprised. Okay, a final question if there is one, otherwise I will retire for the day.